Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, it's good to see you today. I am grateful for the opportunity to be with you. I, I'm going to forego uh, very many personal comments as we start this morning, simply because we've got about 30 minutes here. Uh, and uh, this is the most significant section to kind of get in, in our mind if we're going to study through First and Second Peter. Uh, please understand we won't be able to touch everything. Uh, I will avoid all the controversial parts and the parts that I do not know the answers to. Uh, but we will talk about uh, some important things. These are wonderful letters. Uh, they are exceptionally practical and applicable to the age that we live in. So if you haven't been reading through them, I would ask you to be doing so as we go through the week. Uh, and uh, this morning we're going to look at the first uh, 20 verses or so. And so you can see why I'm not going to offer a whole lot of personal comments other than thank you for having me again. It's good to be with you, and I look forward to our week. Uh, I want to read this section with you, and, and I want you to think about this as we read through. Uh, Jacob's already kind of hinted at where this study's going. And if you've looked at the titles, then you know kind of what we're going to emphasize. I want you to think about what it is that drives you to do what you do every day. Uh, for some of you who are retired, that may be a question that you have no idea what you're doing with your life at this point. Uh, but for you younger folks still have kids at home, the chances are pretty good. What's driving you right now is raising your children. Uh, it may be that what's driving you to get up every day and live your life is you have some kind of financial goal that you're trying to achieve. Maybe you're growing a business or maybe in your business you're trying to get to a certain point so that you can advance uh, it may be that your health drives you day in and day out. If you have some issues, then that can kind of become a consuming thing. Uh, it may be your emotional well-being. It may be your grandkids. There may be any number of things. And we don't stop and think about this very often. In that regard, I want to ask you what it is that drives you in your service to God. My suspicion is when you obeyed the gospel, you obeyed the gospel initially because like most folks, you didn't want to go to hell. Uh, let, let, let's, just, let's just be honest. That's what most people think about when they first obey the gospel. I'm a sinner. I'm condemned. I don't want to stand before God condemned. I don't want to go to hell. And hopefully what happens is that motivation changes as we grow spiritually. And, and when Peter begins this letter... He begins this letter by addressing motivation. And it's really going to drive the discussion through not only the first letter, but the second letter as well. So think about that as we read this section. Uh, the, the clue to look for in this section is hope. Because that's what he's going to offer as an incentive, and that's what I want to talk about for the next 25 minutes or so. So 1 Peter chapter, three, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, let's begin at the end of verse 2 where he actually... Uh, foregoes the introduction uh, and says, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, if, uh, though, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, 
that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the graces to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now let's just stop right there. Okay, I want you to see a couple of things in this passage that, that Peter addresses in regards to why we're serving God. Uh, and I want to, to, to take, first of all, uh, the section beginning in verse 3, and I want to make some observations down through verse 6, okay? Uh, I want you to appreciate that this hope that he talks about, and that's where he focuses in, in verse 3, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us to a hope, to a, to, a, uh, uh, to a living hope, to an animated expectation, and, and and we could spend a lot of time going through all the details here. But you think about that for a second. Your hope we generally define as this desire and expectation. I, I want to ask questions. This is not class period, is it? Okay. Uh, I, I, I wanna, this would be wonderful if we just like two weeks and discuss this letter. But I want you to think about this idea of, of, of our hope, what we, what we desire. Everybody here wants to go to heaven, right? Shake your head, Yes. Okay, that, yes, you want to go to heaven. If you don't shake your head yes, it means you don't want to go to heaven. So let's start over. Everybody here wants to go to heaven, right? Yes. Okay, and, and so that's something we're looking forward to. The question that I think a lot of our brethren very often face in this world is, do you expect that? Because we're a little hesitant to be very confident that we're going to go to heaven when we die. No, well, we should be. It's God's promise to us. God's going to forgive us. Uh, this is something that we are striving toward. Uh, so this, this, this desire we have for the reward of God should be animated. It should be a living hope. It's something that should drive us in our lives. And I want you to notice what Peter says it should drive us toward. When he starts verse 3 and says, Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not just a... Uh, a, a, a kind of uh, uh, uniform way of greeting people. It's not uh, grace and mercy be to you. It's not like, how are you doing when you come in the church building door? Because most people don't really care how you're doing. That's just the way we greet one another. And I know that because if you tell them how you're doing, uh, they're probably going to walk off pretty quickly. Okay. So we have these, these ways of just kind of commonly greeting. 
That's not what Peter's doing in this verse. What Peter is doing in this verse is saying, God deserves some honor because of what God has done for us in giving us something that drives our lives. And so the first point that I would make from this first little section is, this hope that that God has offered to us because of His mercy, it ought to prompt some gratitude in your life. Are you a grateful follower of God? That, That to me is a very significant question because the initial point is God deserves some praise here. God is to be blessed Uh, Peter, I mean, Paul opens Ephesians in almost the exact same way. Uh, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the the heavenly places in Christ. Once again, what, what Paul is doing there is inviting people to offer their gratitude toward God. And, and that's something I think that we probably don't underscore as much as we should. Uh, we're familiar with the concept of God's activity, but we take it for granted. So look at what it says here. According to His abundant mercy. Uh, mercy is not the same thing as grace. This is something, this is God's pity poured out really upon His own people. Grace is offered to everybody, but mercy is what God offers to us as those who have been chosen in Christ. And so I want you to appreciate what God has done for you as a Christian. And if you're visiting here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to appreciate what you don't have. So what he says is, according to his abundant mercy, he's begotten us again. We don't use this language much. We would say, in modern terminology, he fathered us. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Uh, Think about your own life. Think about your father. What did you do to become your father's child? Nothing. There's not anything you could have done to become your father's child. You are your father's child almost completely, at least from the father's point of view, as a result of his activity. Now, you you can start arguing for the mother's part. That's not my point here. My point is, you've done nothing to be where you are as a human being relative to your father. You are completely dependent upon him for your very existence. That's what Peter's pointing out here. We are very familiar in the New Testament with the idea of being born again. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, John chapter 3. Peter's going to use this terminology. Uh, John uses the terminology a couple of times. That is the idea of new birth from the perspective of what we have done. But I want you to think about you and I as children of God from the perspective of what He has done. As a result of our faith and our obedience, what God has done is God has made us His children. And you and I have nothing to do with that. You you can obey the gospel, you can put your faith, you can repent, but you can't tell God, I want to be your child now. He could have made us his slaves, He, he, he could have entered into all kinds of relationships with us, but the relationship that He chose to enter in with us is a relationship of father and child. And you could argue spiritually, depending upon how you see the process of being born again, that there's a very literal sense in which God made you and I His children. 
Now, that has ramifications. My, my own children, I, was, uh, I flew to California a couple weeks ago, and I sent a text to my daughters, three daughters, if you don't remember, and, and I said, uh, uh, okay, pray for us. We're, we're on the plane. We're headed home. Uh, and if the plane goes down, my will is in the filing cabinet in my office. And guess what all three of my daughters said? Hey, we're not talking about that. Why in the world would you bring that up? I mean, they were just livid as a result that I might suggest that they don't know where the will is. And, of course, my response was, hey, you better be practical in this day and age. If we die, you don't have any idea what to do. And that just made it all worse. Well, the reality is what I understand and what they don't want to think about is that if I die, what I have belongs to them and all the headaches that go with it, okay? This is the point that Peter is making to us. God fathered us and as a result, because of the resurrection of Jesus, which proves what He has given us, we have an inheritance. An inheritance is ours by right. You think about that. It's not just God's kindness that offers us eternal salvation, it is our right because now we are children. We are family members. And, and I don't think this is just language that's intended to tickle our fancy folks. I think this is something that God intends us to understand. We have hope. Not only a desire, but an expectation as a child that when we die, we have an inheritance. And he goes on to describe it here. Incorruptible, undefiled, Unfading. These are terms that we understand. Uh, this is not something that is ex that, that, that's susceptible to, to, to things upon this earth. It is indestructible. Uh, it, it, it is not something that we will cease to enjoy. It is unfading. It is not something that's corrupted in any way like the world around us is and is increasingly so. God has set aside for us an inheritance that is beyond our wildest imaginations, that far out, out, outshines anything in this world, and He does it simply because He chose us to be His children. And you and I have the right to expect that. And that better be driving us every day. I, I hear people from time to time say, you know, you, you Christians, uh, you, you, you guys, you just it's all pie in the sky to you. Yeah. It is. Because I don't think this world's going to get better. It's not gotten better in my lifetime. And you can say all you want to about health and wealth preaching that goes on out here in the world, but I guarantee you all those people that are buying into it, they're not becoming more healthy and more wealthy, except for the preachers. Okay? The reality is there's no deliverance in this world. Our inheritance is not in the here and now. Go read Ecclesiastes. What is it that makes life empty and vain and, and grasping after the wind? It's death. Even if your life is great, it's only going to be great for a while. But because you and I are children, we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. It includes not only a place, it includes an association with the Father, uh, with the Son, with the Spirit, with those who have gone on before, and it includes an eternal body that is not subject to corruption. Now, if that's not something to put your hope in and get up every day and, and, and drive you, I don't know what's going to drive you. And God needs some recognition for that. 
And so when we sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah, we need to be thinking that God really does deserve our gratitude because what He has done of His own accord is made us His children and He has made us heirs and, 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 and He's given us something to look forward to in this life. I want you to notice one other thing in this section. I, I kind of skipped verse 5. I want you to notice in verse 5, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Uh, I wish I understood this better than I do. Okay? What I understand, first of all, is when he says that God keeps us, there is some meaning there that God doesn't clarify elsewhere. The, the word keep is an interesting term. It, it means to garrison, uh, to hem in. And, and the way that it would be used is when, when you surround something that you want to protect with an army and you're constantly watching in order to protect whatever it is. Now that's the idea that Peter is offering. God is keeping us. Now this is a here and now something God's doing. Uh, and this is dangerous territory because now you start getting off into, okay, how is God keeping me? Well, I mean, there are people who, and this is very popular in this day and age, and there may be people here that believe this, what I'm about to say, and if that's the case, you can come talk to me because we, we have some discussions uh, to have. There are people that, that have bought into this modern concept that God the Spirit is inside me, and He's just leading me step by step. He, he's, he's the puppet master, and I'm a puppet, and, and you, He's got a plan for me. He's got a way for me. My life is already set. I can't find that in the Bible, folks. And if your thought is God's keeping you because God's guiding you every step of the way, you tell me what happens when you find something that you want that God says no and you do it anyway. Where's God then? Where's the Spirit when temptation comes and you fail? I don't believe that's the concept. I don't find that concept in the Scriptures. What I do find is the idea that God at times has protected His people in ways that they didn't know until He showed them. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 11 and, uh, 6 and you read about Elisha and Gehazi surrounded by the Assyrian army and Dothan. And Elisha says, there's more for us than there are for them. And Gehazi thinks that he's crazy and, and he prays, open his eyes that he may see. And here's the, the angels of God surrounding them. If it happened then, it can happen now. I don't know. I'm not going to deny that possibility. I do believe that what this passage says is God is garrisoning His people. As long as we are keeping our faith, and notice that, you are kept through faith by the power of God for salvation. So I do believe God's helping. I don't believe that He is doing it for you, but I do think He is helping um, there's no temptation taken us, but such is common to man. There are plenty of passages that uphold that concept. But, but here's the point. God fathered you. God's keeping you. God's got an inheritance for you. All these things are, sur are sure and certain. Does that impact the way you think about God at all? Because it is this idea of appreciation and gratitude and praise and service that's supposed to be driving us. Fear of hell needs to go away 
after a while as the primary motivation. You know what needs to be our motivation? Look at what God has done for me. None of which I deserve. None of which I could do on my own. And I need to get up every day and make sure my life is a testament to my appreciation to my God. That's not an easy point to get there. But it's where we all need to get. Okay? Now, now let me suggest to you that that thought that God has fathered us to this end so He can protect us like children, so that He can give us an inheritance, that really drives the rest of First and Second Peter. It's interesting, even just in this chapter, notice down in verse 14, as obedient children. Again in verse 17, if you call on the Father. Again in verse 21, you're not redeemed with corruptible things. Now, verse 23, I'm, I'm sorry. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. He's not talking about tomato seed. He's talking about the seed that a father plants in the mother, especially in the context. This idea of, hey, we're the children of God. It's just going to drive everything. And so the question that, that if you don't get anything else out of this first study is this. Do you appreciate who you are if you're a Christian? what God has done for you, what God continues to do for you every day, and what God has in store for you, and is that driving you? Because if something else is driving you, then you've got some work to do, okay? Does that make sense? Do you see that in this passage? Yes? No? If you don't, shake your head no, and we'll keep going, you know? Somebody's going to get mad, but uh, we'll keep going. Okay, two other things in this first section. And these grow out of this. The, the second thing is beginning in verse 6. And, and so let me preface it by saying, hope not only should produce gratitude, hope should produce some joy in life. And I will tell you, this is a challenge for me because I am a pessimist and a curmudgeon and I don't like anything and I don't like any of you. I'll smile and tell you I like you. Life, life is hard for my personality type. And I'm not kidding when I say that. Finding joy is a challenge. And it is for some people. I have a daughter who's the same way. And we talk about this on a regular basis. Our, our little pet phrase is uh, carpe gaudium. Seize the joy. Find something that you can, that you can be happy about every day. And, and, and I think Peter grabs upon that concept because especially in his day... It was hard to be a Christian. Remember, he, he's, he's writing still in the days of probably Nero. And while Nero's persecution was not empire-wide, it was nonetheless setting a precedent for the way that people treated Christians. The Jews didn't treat, treat them well. Some of the Gentiles in certain places did, but, but even Paul early in his journeys is having trouble simply because he's trying to help people Serve the Lord, be better people, go to heaven, be children of God. And so finding joys is not always easy, and so Peter goes there next. So hope should produce joy. In this, now remember verse 5, the salvation ready to be revealed. In this salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, let's think about that for a second. What's coming... Ought to help us get through what's now. Do you get that? 
What's coming ought to help us get through what's now. And I find it curious because what he is saying is the very thing we've just said. Hopefully we've said it because he's saying it. Our reward is the incentive. And yet what happens is we have all this junk that we have to deal with in this life. Now, I don't know what troubles you in your life personally. It may be financial challenges. It may be health challenges. Uh, I, I've watched that in my own family since I was here last. My dad went through a bunch of stuff and died. And, and I watched how that impacted my family, my mom, my sister, myself, my kids. All of, I, Health challenges can, can really impact you. Uh, what's happening in the culture or for some people in the government, which we're going to talk about. Sorry, yes, we're going to talk about it. Uh, that, that's a challenge for people. The, the reality is difficulties in life get our attention. And they keep our attention. And, and they blind us because we get fixated on them. If you've got a health challenge in your life, what do you think about when you get up first thing in the morning? You think about whatever the health challenge is. Uh, I'm, I'm about to turn 61, starting to develop some arthritis. The first thing I notice when I get up every morning is, is it easy or hard to close my hands today? The very first thing. Because it's very practical, it's right in front of me. Now, that doesn't stick with me long, but if I had a chronic illness, it'd be hard to go through the day without that becoming the thing you think about because life revolves around dealing with that. Well, I want you to understand something. Life doesn't revolve around the junk we deal with in this life. The circumstances of life cannot be what determines our views of God. And very often people are, hey, if God loves me, why has this happened to me? If God loves me, why am I going through this? Serving God hasn't done me any good. This whole health and wealth deal that people are so fixated upon is completely opposed to the Bible picture. What Peter says is, you rejoice in your salvation even though for a little while, if need be, You've been grieved by various trials. That doesn't, he doesn't mean somebody's brought you into court for being a Christian. He means the things that test whether you really trust that God is good and loving and caring, whether He's really keeping you, whether He really thinks anything about you. Uh, if you're single and you, no, no spouse, no, you know, no, no prospects, that, that gets in your head. And, and there's just all kinds of things. Young couples trying to have children, uh, young couples who have children, God, why have you given me this kid? I, I, you know, there are a lot of things that cause us to stop thinking about this. No matter what happens in my life, God has still fathered me. God still keeps me. And I still have an inheritance. Nothing that happens to me will change what God has done for me and what God will do for me. And yet, as he says, you know, these things grieve us. It's okay to be affected by them. But he tells us in verse 7, you know what this does? It, it tests our faith. It, it helps us to understand that, you know, uh, there's not a lot in life to put your confidence in. It proves the book of Ecclesiastes is what it does. So you go through garbage and you realize I can't put a lot of confidence in my money 
or my health or my family or my friends or my government or whatever else. What I can put some trust in is who God is and what God's doing. And so, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory. So, so what he says to us is... We need to rejoice in where we stand with God no matter what's going on. And that, that makes a kind of a paradox sometimes. You, you, somebody you love dies, you're going to be sad. You're going to grieve. But you're still going to have joy. Because the joy is not emotionally based. The joy is conviction based. I know what God has. And that's going to impact my mind. My emotions may be all over the map because of what I'm going through in my life, but my emotions can't determine my faith. Does that make sense to you? And so finally then, let me make this application because we're out of time. I told you we weren't going to get through this. Uh, so so hope, hope should produce gratitude. That's the big one. And then hope should produce joy. And then finally, I want you to go down to verse 13 where he gives us the therefore. And here's the practical part of this. What do I do because God is my Father? What do I do because I have joy no matter what garbage I'm dealing with in my life? Well, what I do is, is, is I be holy. That's what I do. Hope ought to prompt some holiness in us. And, and this is the practical challenge. Uh, he, he says, first of all, gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, how many of you told your kids sometime in the last six months, Hey, you guard up your loins before you go outside. Anybody? You know, husbands, wives, hey, make sure you gird up your loins, honey. Yeah, we don't use this language, and as a result, we don't really necessarily understand the idiom. Maybe you do. If we were all wearing togas and we were going to work, uh, what we would do so that our robe did not get in the way of our work, or if we were playing ball or whatever we were doing, is we would reach down and we would take the robe and we would tuck it into our girdle, uh, our belt. And so our loins would be girded in preparation for work. That's the idiom. And, and, and if you were going to translate it, instead of taking the idiom and putting the idiom there, the translation would be, set your mind. If, if, if God's done these things for you, and, and your joy is found in where you're going, then... God says, you, you set your mind. You, you make up your mind. You brace yourself. You remember this stuff as you go day in and day out living your life. Because there's going to be temptations and there's going to be difficulties and there's going to be distractions. And, and so the most important thing is that we brace ourselves for living in, in the world that we're living in. And, and, and these people had it hard. And so Peter says, look... You, you, you brace yourself. Get it in your head what life's going to be like. Because service, folks, is not just about the feels. Service is about the conviction. It's about the reason. It's about the, what we can know. You set your mind. You be sober. And that doesn't simply mean don't drink alcohol. Uh, you you, you want to know what affects more Christians in regards to inebriation than alcohol? Money. Money can cause us to lose our sense of reason and balance, and that's all the idea of sobriety is. Uh, fame 
beauty, um, pride. There's, a, there's all kinds of things. Lust can cause us to stop thinking right. And so what he says is be sober. Whatever it is that gets in your way of keeping your mind where it needs to be, he says you, you need to make sure that it does not overtake you and intoxicate you. And, and, and then he says, with your hope where it should be, be obedient children. Be holy. Now we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, in uh, tomorrow night when we get to chapter 2. But the idea of holiness is pretty simple, folks. We just can't be like the world. And, and we all get that uh, until we have a teenage daughter uh, who, who wants to run around with no clothes on and go to school dance. All of a sudden, being different and not being like the rest of the world, that becomes a challenge. Uh, we all get that until we're involved in a business deal and it gets a little shady and it's going to require just a little bit of dishonesty. But it's not personal, it's business. And all of a sudden we become just like the rest of the world. We get holiness until we have to be different. And we best understand the demands of hope. God expects us to obey. And that's kind of fallen out of popularity in our day and age. We, we're a lot more interested in asking God to forgive than we are just cinching up our belts and doing what's hard. But God expects obedience. And that's the measure of holiness. So, out of time, here's the summary. God deserves our gratitude. And it ought to be manifest in every way possible in our worship, in our lives, in, in our personal convictions, in our faith. And, and because of that hope, we need to appreciate that uh, we have something to, to, to be joyful about no matter how bad things become in life. And we need to recognize that God expects something in return. Obedience doesn't earn us anything, but obedience is God's demand to the people who are taking advantage of His gift. So we have to be holy, and we have to set our minds to that. And we have to brace ourselves for the consequences. And we'll talk about that more as we go along through the week. So that's our introduction. That's Peter's introduction. Uh, if Peter never said anything else, it, it, it would be worth studying again and again and again. And I'm sorry to have to go through and, and, and omit so much, uh, because we are, we are. We are jumping over a bunch of stuff, but hopefully we'll get the high notes uh, and uh, you'll come to appreciate this book uh, as I do. Uh, absolutely. You know, Peter gets a bad rap compared to Paul. Everybody, oh, Paul, he's so smart and everything. Do not underrate this fisherman, okay? Because the Spirit's talking through him, too. Okay, thanks for your attention. We don't have an invitation or anything now, do we? Okay.